Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah Peck, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. One of the things about birth that is so part and parcel to the conversation is that when we invite life into our lives, we also invite death. We have so much to talk about today because I am inviting a longtime friend, somebody I went to college with, Emily Garnett, onto the show. And we are going to go deep and talk about both life and death. Emily is an elder law attorney turned stay-at-home mom to her two-year-old son. And she, like me, is a former college swimmer. But in November of 2017, just after her son turned two, and she celebrated, she was just celebrating her fifth wedding anniversary, she was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. Because she's always believed in the power of the voice, she began blogging about the cancer diagnosis and her treatment stories at emilyrgarnett.com as a way to foster community and start the dialogue around what was happening and also to provide education about breast cancer, especially in young and postpartum women. She started Beyond the Pink Ribbon, which is a blog and a podcast about the journey of living with cancer. So in today's episode, we're going to talk all about her parenting journey and her career journey and her cancer journey. And uh, one of the things she says in this episode, she said, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I thought my life was over. But after things had sunk in, I realized that this was one of the greatest opportunities of my life. I had the push I needed to use my diagnosis and treatment to reframe how we talk about breast cancer as a society. The other thing that she says that I think is so important and is such a huge theme to this episode is that living with cancer, whether it's breast cancer or any other type of cancer, doesn't necessarily fall into these two buckets of survivor or death sentence. Just because someone, this, these are her words, just because someone has finished treatment does not mean that they are done with cancer. And in the same vein, somebody that's been diagnosed with a metastatic disease isn't just sitting around letting the days go by waiting to die. And she said, you know, I'm still alive and let's, let's treat it that way. And I am so appreciative that she took the time to join us on the show and to talk about all the things that she is building while she is living. So thanks, Emily, for being here. Let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. There is so much to learn when it comes to pregnancy and parenting. You all know that I'm a huge fan of learning from experts and gathering your tribe of people to learn from. So one of the ones I highly recommend is called Alavita Nutrition. They are the sponsor of this episode and they are a tremendous resource when it comes to food and health and wellness. Anna and Megan started the company and they are registered dietitians and entrepreneurs and they want to make eating good food and understanding nutrition easier for busy moms. I have been stalking their blog and reading all of the recipes 
And now it makes a lot more sense why I crave a bazillion eggs and green juice during my pregnancy because I understand the science behind it. If you want to learn more about nutrition and how to take care of your body before you're pregnant and while you're growing a baby and afterwards, go check them out at Alavita Nutrition. Also, for Startup Pregnant listeners, if you use the code STARTUPPREGNANT, you get 20% off of their self-paced programs or their nutrition consultations. I have all the links in the show notes so you can check them out. And thank you, Alavita Nutrition, for being the sponsor of this episode. Emily, I'm so, so thankful that you are joining us here today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I've been a big fan of the Startup Pregnant podcast pretty much since it launched. And it's one of my favorite things to listen to. So this is a big honor being on the show. Mm, Well, you and I have known each other for, for years and years, for a really long time. I'd love to start by asking you to tell me about, like, go back in time and tell me about your career evolution and, and your life as a lawyer. So I started after college, I moved out to New York City and I started working in in a medical office and in a nonprofit doing a lot of insurance claims, kind of management benefits stuff and case management. I was doing case management for homeless people with HIV in kind of deep Brooklyn and the South Bronx. So it was a lot of hitting the streets, reaching out to people kind of in in the, the most nitty gritty situations possible. And from that situation, I realized I really wanted to level up in terms of my ability to be an advocate. So I went to law school. And in law school, I started getting really interested in elder law. My my public health interests and my advocacy interests seem to dovetail in working with the geriatric population and special needs populations doing guardianships. So my my career really took off there. And I started doing Article 81 guardianships, which in New York is when someone is adjudicated incapacitated, they are assigned an attorney who becomes their proxy for financial and medical and personal needs decisions if there's no family member that can step in. And so that was what I was doing as as an attorney. And I was also doing a lot of Medicaid, Medicare, and benefits management, but really a lot of this guardianship stuff. So I was, you know, you name it, I saw it. It was so interesting and crazy and wonderful. But that that was where where my career took me. And so I would come in and to these people who had nothing, they had, they were had dementia or had some sort of issue where they couldn't manage their finances. Some were getting evicted. Some were in hospitals. I had a man who was in, who had been hospitalized for over a year with a stroke who was not a legal resident. He was an undocumented alien and had been living in the U.S. for decades and had a stroke. And so the hospital didn't have anywhere to place him because he didn't have any insurance. He didn't have any documentation. And I was assigned to be his guardian. And so I petitioned immigration to 
allow him to stay in the U.S. as a permanent resident under the color of law. And once you're assigned permanent residency through this through this avenue, you're automatically eligible for lifetime Medicaid benefits. So I was able to keep him from deportation, get him Medicaid benefits, and allow him to stay in the U.S. and receive medical care for the rest of his life. And he was a younger guy, too. He was not, you know, he had many, many decades left to live. So it was it was just crazy being able to step in and really shift the course of people's lives like that. So mm. it was, um, you know, I, I loved it, but it was very intense, 24-7. Like, it's like having children mm. because you're always on call for these people who are so desperately in need of guidance and assistance in every facet of their life. So how does that, this busy, thriving career where you're doing so much advocacy on behalf of other people in the law, the legal profession, how how does that dovetail with your parenting journey? And I think you have an awesome story of how you met your partner. So um, <laughs> tell us about this. Yes. Well, so my my husband and I met through a friend of his from college. We just celebrated our 10-year anniversary of the night that we met yesterday um, at the time of recording. So we met through a friend of his from college, and this was in 2008. So the, the reference that he made was much more timely then. And he introduced himself, and he looks at me, and he goes... I'm a custom wood furniture maker like Aiden from Sex in the City or Jesus. <laughs> and it was like, I, I was just floored. I was like, that is the most hilarious and amazing introduction ever. I, I'm so intrigued. I'm so fascinated. And so we we just hit it off and we've been together ever since. And um, we were together for four and a half years before we got married. And then another two years before we started really trying to get pregnant. So we had we had lived a lot of life together before we brought kids into the equation. We went through grad school and law school and jobs and job gains and losses. And it was, uh, you know, it was a lot. We had we had seen a lot of life together. So I felt like I, I, I thought that we were prepared for anything. <laughs> Spoiler alert, we were not. Yep. <laughs> but um, so it, it was, you know, he was he was incredibly supportive of this this legal career. But it was it was a very intense career. It was really when I say 24 seven, it was 24 seven. I've I, I had had situations where I would get phone calls at one or two in the morning and have to throw on some clothes and go downtown and take care of my ward because things were happening with a home health aide or they were sick or at the hospital. And one of the the things that you don't realize when when you take on a guardianship is that you are you're effectively the parent you're the decision maker for everything so i had a award who became very violent one night he had a lot of paranoia and became very violent toward his home health aide. And the home health aide said, this is not a safe environment for me. I need to leave. So I had to go down there and call 911, bring 911, bring the paramedics into the scene and get him taken to a psychiatric emergency room where he was held 
until we could stabilize him. And this was, you know, in the middle of the night. And I'm by myself at 20 something dealing with this, this very, very large older gentleman. So it was, uh, it was wild. And then how does, how does parenting, like, I just am trying to even imagine how you deal with a career like that and decide to become parents and then have children. Tell me about like, was the decision to start having children an easy one to make? And and then what did it look like in reality? Well, so we had, I had been working for, I guess, about three years before we decided that we were ready to start trying to have kids. And my husband also has a, a very demanding career. And we were looking at both of us in these really, really intensive, demanding roles. And I just said, I, I'm i well set up. I'm well equipped to take a step back for a few years because being an attorney in, in that specific specialty, it's easy to maintain those connections. And so I was very comfortable saying, look, I'm going to take a step back and try to stay home a little bit more. I maintained all of my professional connections. And I had I had networked quite a bit with the idea that I would kind of keep my, my foot in the game. And I did, but primarily stay home once we had a child. And, and we were both really excited about that possibility. So I um, once I got pregnant in 2015 with our son, I made plans to start um, kind of pulling myself back from my guardianships. And I stayed on in kind of an advisory role after he was born. And that allowed me to maintain connections with the courts and with the attorneys and other people that were involved in those roles after I left my job. But I did leave my job right before he was born and chose to become a primarily stay-at-home parent, which was also terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, you, it, the stay-at-home parent thing is you're jumping off the deep end and and there's no colleagues or guides to tell you how to do it in some ways. It's just, uh, what was it like for you? Did you find it amazing, difficult, overwhelming, challenging? What were What was it like for you? Sarah, I've done a lot of hard things in my life. As you know, I was a college swimmer. I ran the New York City Marathon. I went through law school. I was an attorney. I dealt with people with dementia that had nothing, none of that compared to the first few months of my son's life. I have never felt so overwhelmed and terrified and unprepared and just in over my head. I I think that there are a lot of people that jump into motherhood and say, you know what, I feel good about this. And I have to say, truth bomb, I did not. I I love my son and I love having him and being a mother, but that shifting roles into being a new parent was so insanely difficult for me and so it did not come naturally. It did not feel like any of it felt like I was prepared to do it. It was really, really hard. 
I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and also it's so like I, I always struggle and this is probably a recurring theme of what we'll talk about today, but I always struggle with trying to like communicate it to people because I remember when I wasn't a parent and people talked about all these cliches of motherhood. So it's hard. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done college swimming. It's like I've done some right. stuff. Like, and it's just I've done, re- some, stuff. <laughs> I've yeah. done some stuff. And it's hard to. It's just difficult in so many different ways. It, the relentlessness of it all. I think for me, I mean, we got up at five thirty every day to do swim practice together in oh, yeah. college, and oh, yeah. the fact that it wasn't just like four or five days a week, but it's seven days a week, 365 days a year. Your kid doesn't care if it's Christmas because he doesn't know what Christmas is. Like, you never, ever, ever get to sleep it it's just it's just kind of it's grating it just it really takes its toll so um not to terrify people out there but it is a big thing and getting help is helpful i i just i really struggle to find appropriate language for all of the different feelings that were wrapped up into this like little parenting burrito like I always wanted to tell people, yes, it's wonderful, but the wonderfulness is couched in this brutality of it. It's so raw and it's so difficult and I just want to cry, but I'm also really happy and grateful, but I also really want to cry. And there's there are too many different feelings to kind of wrap it up into one pronunciation of parenthood it, it, it is so intense and all-consuming it's it's i really i still even now two and a half years into it struggle to kind of fully articulate all of the different things that i felt especially in those first few weeks and months mm. okay so i want to ask you a leading question because i think you know where i'm going with this but um <laughs> and also like i want to couch it with listeners i don't always ask this question because it, it depends. But I was I want to ask you like, were you planning on having more kids? And did do you want to have more kids? And tell me about you know your little ones two now two and a half two and a half he'll be two and a half on uh, this Sunday yeah yeah so yes the the short answer is yes we were planning on more having more kids keyword being were um, we are not going to have any more children at this point and. Felix, we had we had tried, you know, Felix was very much a a planned baby. We had I'm I'm a, such a planner by nature. So this was I was like, okay, we're gonna be married for two years. I'm gonna do X, Y, and Z in my career. And then at our two-year wedding anniversary, then we'll pull the goalie, we'll start trying to get pregnant, and it's gonna happen, and then we're gonna have a baby, and done, done, done. And I Life has a wonderful way of looking at your plans and saying, ha ha ha, you're going to have to find a new coping mechanism because your planning is not going to work. And so we were going to have, we were, we were planning on having two kids. Um, We had figured, you know, hoped they would be, you know, between like two and three years apart. And we recently moved out of the city last last fall. We moved out of New York City up into the suburbs. And we bought our first house, which was amazing and wonderful. And I'm sitting here as we're recording this podcast, watching two squirrels chase each other around a tree. And it's just it's it's blissful and idyllic and 
I'm so happy to be up here. And so we figured, all right, once we get settled, as soon as we get into the house, we'll start trying for another baby. And that was last fall. We started trying to get pregnant. And I I went to my primary care doctor to get a physical and just to make sure everything checked out. And I mentioned to her that I had been feeling really bad physically, mentally. I really, I had a lot of aches and pains that previous doctors had kind of dismissed and said, you know, you're a new mom, maybe you could lose some of the baby weight, you're not sleeping very well, I bet you're not exercising or taking care of yourself. And I was like, yeah, all of those things are true. But I feel like my body is falling apart. There's something very deep inside of me that feels like it is not right. So I went to my primary care doctor and I mentioned this. And so we chatted, we did some blood work and she did a physical exam and she found a lump in my breast, my right breast. And she was very serious about it, but she said, I don't think it's nothing. It's it's anything. Statistically, it's probably nothing, but you do need to get it checked out. And so I made an appointment to get it ultra, to get an ultrasound and I go into the ultrasound thinking, ha ha, this is, you know, next time I get an ultrasound, maybe I'll be pregnant and I'll, you know, we, we'll be looking at our second baby. We'll be looking at the baby that would probably complete our family. And the ultrasound, I mentioned this to the ultrasound tech and she got really quiet. And then she stopped the ultrasound and grabbed the radiologist and brought the radiologist into the room, the radiologist looks at me and she just kind of shakes her head. She goes, we got to do more tests. This does not look good. And of course, (laughs) that's never something that anyone wants to hear. And so she said, we want to do a mammogram. We're going to do one right now, not, you know, schedule it for next week, but we're moving you into the next room over in five minutes kind of thing. And does the mammogram and I'm, very nervous at this point, talking to the the tech that's doing the mammogram. And I'm like, oh, you know, th- these are usually nothing, right? We're, we're trying to have a baby. And she said, well, you know, cancer these days is really treatable. And I was like, oh, the what now? <laughs> the, the, what, what, what word did you just use? And she said, yeah, you know, you know, cancer's really treatable. I was like, didn't even compute. I didn't even process what she was saying. And she finished the mammogram and really immediately after the mammogram, the the radiologist pulled me into her office and was like, I don't, I don't like how this looks. I don't, she kept saying, I don't like how this, this scan looks and throwing out terms like speculated, speculated calcifications and this mass and this, there was a second mass. And I just my, you know, when you get into those situations where you just, your stomach just drops out and your ears fill with blood and your head is pounding and you're like, I know something is going really, really wrong here, but I don't know what it is. I, my brain just can't even wrap around it. It was that situation. And so she said, go get your husband. I was like, why? Why do I need to go get my husband? It's not like it's breast cancer. She looks at me. She's like, it's breast cancer you have breast cancer. So I went and got my husband. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And um, they sat us down and we had Felix with us. And the nurse, one of the nurses took Felix out and was playing with him in the waiting room. And 
sat us both down and explained what was going on, took us through the slides, and we're both sobbing. We are a wreck. I mean, how could you not be? How could you, except for being in shock, like, it's just, it was one of those moments where you're like, the course of my life is shifting so dramatically, and I don't know how to hold on to this. I don't know how to how to take back even the illusion of control. So she said, we're going to do a biopsy in about an hour. Get child care for your son. You're going to have a long day. We're going to do the biopsy. You're going to meet with our team at the hospital. Um, you know, be be prepared. You're in for a fight. And so we we dropped Felix off with a friend of ours. And on our way back to the hospital, I made my husband stop so that I could get a notebook and some pens because I was like, well, I need to take notes. I need to be able to keep a record of what's going on. I flipped into case manager mode, into attorney mode so quickly because that was the only way that I knew how to control the situation. I was like, I know my training kicked in in this sort of automatic way. And I was like, we're, we're going to take charge of this. <laughs> and we went into the biopsy. The biopsy was, without getting into too much detail, excruciatingly painful and very unpleasant and took a really long time. And then we met with the nurse navigator, the radiologist, the breast surgeon, the physician's assistant, the oncologist. You know, they, we were at the hospital for 11 hours that day. And, um, they, they, pretty much were like, you okay, we're, you're looking at a mastectomy and some pretty intense chemotherapy, probably radiation, but they didn't think that the cancer had spread. And I kept bringing up to them that I had some pretty awful bone pain that no one could explain in my back and my ribs and my chest that this this very strange these these little pain spots that no one could explain and they said it's it's nothing but you know if you're if you're really worried about it maybe we'll do a scan later on but let's focus on the breast here let's focus on getting the um getting the breast taken care of and then maybe we'll send you to physical therapy or something they were pretty dismissive of it Oh, I can't even imagine just dealing with all of that information so suddenly and so fast. Yes. I I think I spent probably a good month replaying those conversations in my head every night to the point where I needed to call my doctor and say, you have to medicate me in order to get me to stop ruminating about this because I would just sit there for literally for hours, sleepless, playing it back over in my head going, how did this really happen? Is this, this is, I'm going to wake up and this is going to be a joke. And it wasn't. And it just, it, it just kept getting worse. It was, uh, it was a nightmare. How do you tell me about the emotional journey as well? Because you get this like devastating news and like, what is the, what is the reaction? I I imagine I would go into shock and all of those, right. And denial and bargaining, all of those things, but also sink into depression. Like what? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Tell me about well, that. Well, I, 
before I get into that, I want to add a little bit to the story because when they told me I had breast cancer, that was not the worst news that I heard. I went to a very large cancer center in the city for a second opinion, and they took a look at all of my scans and and all of my pathology and everything and immediately sent me for a full body PET scan. They're like, this, this doesn't look good. Before, at the other hospital, they had originally diagnosed me around stage two, where, where it's pretty localized. There's no lymph node involvement. And to kind of cut to the chase at the second opinion, they took a look at me and they go, it's not stage two, it's stage four. Your cancer has metastasized to your bones. That's why you have all this bone pain. Now, stage four breast cancer is incurable. The treatment for metastatic breast cancer is we, the standard for treatment is progression free survival. And in the very outdated statistics that Dr. Google will give you, the average life expectancy is about two and a half years. It's grim. Yeah. Now, I'm like open mouth and just nodding <laughs> my head over here and just processing, which I'm sure. Yes. I keep had going. six months to process it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I'm, 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 I'm trying not to kind of flip into my pre-prepared kind of spiel about it because I do have to give it so much. Be- yeah. And so, so. Cause there's that fix it mentality, right? The like, I, I think we're a little similar in this way of wanting to plan and fix and like make everything neat and tidy in some ways and be like, Oh, here's the thing. A to B, F to Z, like dot, 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 you know, and like tidy about this. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no fixing it. There's no fixing it. There's literally, there is no medical science that says we can fix this, that, that, that the best doctors and researchers in the world cannot fix this. And all they can say is we're going to give you drugs that will hopefully keep you alive past the mean. Now, I also am fortunate in that I'm young, I'm healthy, and the kind of the, the, the technical breakdown of my cancer is not as scary as it could be. So I'm, I look at that and I say, you know what, we're not in worst case scenario. We're close, but we're not. We're, we're not in worst case scenario. And we can do this. Like we can, you know, we can, uh, we can work with this. So, but yes, I, to, 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 to get back to your original question, Sarah, I got super depressed. There were weeks where I couldn't get out of bed. I, I am here in my present state by the wonders of modern pharmaceuticals. I have a fabulous psychiatrist who is monitoring me really well and making sure that I have the medication I need to sleep, to not feel stressed, to help with my symptoms, both mentally and physically. And I have an incredible team of doctors who are really on top of things. And I am 100% of the recommendation that if you even think that you could be having psychological stress after a breast cancer diagnosis or for any sort of challenges with life, 
talk to a psychologist, talk to a psychiatrist. That's what they're good at. And they are going to be part of your team to help prop you up and make you make you get back to being yourself again and finding your new self. So I, I have to really give a lot of credit to my psychiatric team to make sure that I'm functioning, that I'm, I'm a lot, that I can be mom and wife and person and patient and advocate in a way that I want to be and not, not continue being sad Emily in bed. But I, I spent a lot of time in a lot of stages of grief. I went through the stages of grief in very acute, very real ways. And, and, and they're not done. They're not, the stages of grief are not, I I like to think of them as a black hole and it sounds a little bit morbid, but you have to get to that point where you look at the absolute worst case scenario. And I'm going to get really emotional saying this Mm -hmm. because it is so hard to imagine, but you have to look at the worst case scenario and say, you know what? I can deal with it. I I can, if that's what's going to happen, it's what's going to happen. I can't control it, but I can control where I am right now, what I put into my body, what I do with my body, how I love my family and friends and what I put out into the universe in this minute of this day. That's what I can control and everything else is out of my control. And so you just send it into that black hole and say, it's gone. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not mine. It's not mine to hold on to. And, um, and that is the, the single scariest thing to do to look the possibility of death, the very real possibility of, of dying much earlier than I think any of us want or expect in the face and say, you do you, I'm going to do me. Hmm. (laughs) Emily, I can't, I, I remember when you first shared your diagnosis, um, and on social media, I think is how I found out, yeah, or it was through yeah. through an email. Um, and both, I I, I, think I put you it did out both. there, yeah, quite a bit, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember just like being in such shock and having all of these these feelings and reactions that I was certain you were going through too, and uh, <laughs> you know, mine being just a fraction of it. But the like, just the existentialism of like, what? But what? But what about her kid? And right, like, right. and how's this gonna, and I was just, I couldn't stop crying to Alex and being like, I don't want to think about this. I don't want to think about not being around for Leo's life. Like, and, and like, I can't like even consider, I mean, I can obviously. And then you also have to look at it and be like, well, we're all going to fucking die. Like that it's was something true. that came along. Like we're all, and none of us has a ticket to being 90, nobody. And, and then, but it's just like. The questions it makes you start asking about what then what do I do with right now because it's literally all I have. I don't even. Whew, Emily, I mean, thank you for again, thank <laughs> you for being here and talking about this on the show because, like, like for f- sake, like <laughs> go punch the universe, you know. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the universe is 
And I say this not to be glib. I say this after months and months of wrestling with the universe as a like (laughs) the universe owes us nothing and gives us nothing that everything that we have is our own kind of manipulation of it and our own our own kind of manifestation in it but Mm. the universe also they owe it owes us nothing that you know these things happen like it's not there's no one has a you know a magic ticket punched to be 90 statistics show that most people will likely live to old age and retirement but that's a mean and there are a lot more statistics out there that can give you a better picture of what your life is going to look like and i i say this because i spend hours digging through statistics yes. going Tell me, give me my crystal ball. Tell me, tell me what things are going to look like in six months. And then, and they're just like, yeah, no, no. (laughs) Um, But it's, uh, I, I, I still, there's a big part of me that doesn't go down that rabbit hole. I don't think about what, what, what it is that a world where I don't get to see my little boy graduate from college or go to kindergarten or, um, you know, get married or have his first job or have his first car. I I don't think about that. I, I give myself about five to 10 minutes every night. I usually now everyone is different and I'm, you know, I take an Ativan and a Tylenol PM every night because my combination of medications and crippling anxiety over my life situation really makes sleep very difficult. So I'm, um, so I, I make sure that I medicate myself enough to sleep very well. And I, I take my medication, my sleep medication, and then I take a hot shower every night before I go to bed. And in that shower, that's my safe space. And I let myself go to the deepest, darkest places so that I know that they're there. And I know that I know that they're there and I know that I can leave it because when you're afraid of those dark places, that's when that fear can grab a hold of you. And when you know that they're there and you take time to live with it and say, you know what, you're scary, but you're also walking life with me. That, that there's, there's no way that I can get through life without having those dark places exist with me. I need to be able to acknowledge that because that's how I'm going to be able to plan my life for the next day and week and month. And that's going to fuel me to be the best mom and the best advocate and the best person and be the happiest, have the happiest next day that I can. So I let myself have that safe space and then the medication kicks in and I I can pull myself out of it and put it away and say, you know what? Not today. (laughs) A hundred percent. So I asked you such a leading question before because I wanted to bring it back. Um, 
because people don't know, right? They don't know everything right. that's inside of us. And so people will invariably ask, like, oh, are you having another? Or, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Can you talk about, and I did it and I was like biting my tongue while I was doing it, um, but I knew where we were going. So. Right, 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 right. No, I love it. I love it. <laughs> so um, when people ask you this question about like your procreation and, and also what questions, like, what does it do and what do you wish they would ask instead? And what are some of the, the things that you wish other people knew? Well, I, I'm a pretty blunt person about this, about my cancer diagnosis and how it's impacted my fertility. So my, my cancer is driven by estrogen. And the first course of treatment that I had was to completely shut down my ovaries and put me into permanent menopause at age 32. So when my doctor told me that, she said, you're, you're never going to be able to have another biological child. You're, you're done having kids. That's, it is, you will, having a child will kill you, um, were her, were her words. And we didn't have the time or the resources to freeze eggs. And it really didn't feel like, it felt like like too much of a deviation from kind of our course of like, all right, let's get into treatment. Let's, let's take care of the cancer. And adoption is really not an option when you have a terminal illness. No one is going to adopt a child out to someone whose family is in, in chronic crisis. And, and nor should they. That, that's it, um, in a lot of ways. So at that point, our our options to continue to expand our family were um, were eliminated. We, we were we're one and done. And so when people ask me, you know, oh, you know, are you giving your son a sibling? And I just kind of tell them point blank, I can't have any more children. I have metastatic cancer, and. For me, I'm very open about my my cancer diagnosis because I think that it's important to it's important to create the opportunity to have the uncomfortable conversations. And I want people to feel like they can engage with me about that. But god, it stings. Like it it's so hard to to listen to people try to fix that. I, I even, I had a nurse at one of my appointments a few months ago, ask me if we were having any other kids. And I was like, no, you, you have my chart in front of me. You know, I'm oh. not having any other kids. And she's like, well, you know, she was like, so, so glib about it. And she was like, well, you could always adopt. I'm like, no, we can't. We, we have no other options. And so I, I think that it's not the question that bothers me, although I do think that people need to, if you're going to ask that question, be prepared for staying in an uncomfortable space with the answer. And and that is that is what I ask of people, is that if the question is, if the answer is not readily apparent, know that there's a reason. That if you want to know why we're not having any more kids, be willing to sit and talk to me about 
my my cancer diagnosis and my prognosis and my life expectancy. And those are very uncomfortable things to sit and talk about. But if you want to share that space with me, that is you're sharing a space with me about some of the deepest, most intimate parts of my existence. So that's that's a that's a gift. That's mm. a really incredible opportunity. Yeah. You you mentioned two things that I think are so important. And we were talking about this in one of our online conversations too. First, people are so glib about how, oh, what about this? What about this? What about, you know, they ask so many right. questions that are actually really invasive questions. So, so invasive. It's, you know, when you boil it down, it's like, so how does your uterus function and when will you be making more life? <laughs> it's like, yeah, uh, but- I, uh hold on, please wait. But then the other thing you said that I think is so important is that people really try to fix the problem. Like if they don't like your answer, they're like, well, you could just do this. And I find that so disrespectful because it it kind of assumes that you haven't ever thought about this before, or you're not consumed by it. It's like, oh, well, have you tried IVF? And it's like, ah, uh, you know, I've never right. even heard of that before. What is that? Why don't you tell me? <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, it assumes a tremendous amount of privilege. And that is so clear to me, because when I first received my diagnosis, I I jumped into case manager mode in, in the most aggressive way possible. I was like, I need to get all of my information together. I need to research this. And and it was cathartic for me. It gave me something to be in charge of. And I really went kind of balls to the wall with all of the fertility information because I wanted to make sure that we were making the most informed choice possible. And I I made a number of appointments with different fertility places in the tri-state area to talk to them about what my fertility options are. There's a whole subspecialty called oncofertility that just deals with fertility preservation for people with estrogen issues. So breast cancer with, you know, an estrogen receptor component to it. And I called them up and basically grilled them about what their procedures were, how much it costs, how, what the timeline was, whether or not it was covered by insurance. And the procedures are extraordinarily expensive. If my memory serves me correct, it they had quoted me between ten and twelve thousand dollars for either egg or embryo preservation when you're dealing with the oncofertility component of it. Because you have to the protocols are a little bit different because you can't stimulate the ovaries to in a way that you would normally because of the estrogen concerns. So it was a little bit more nuanced. So I said, okay, well, so assuming we were to go forward with that, how would we then utilize that egg or embryo? And they said, you would have to implant it, the egg or the embryo into a surrogate. And if you don't preserve your egg, you would have to adopt an egg. And egg adoption is actually a thing. It's very expensive and very difficult, but it's a thing. 
it's really egg adoption and then pregnancy through a surrogate is really one of the only avenues of reproduction available for women with metastatic breast cancer who were unable to preserve their fertility in other ways, who who basically who didn't freeze eggs or embryos prior to starting treatment. Yeah. Or or fostering, which is also something that we looked into fostering or adoption. I I looked into everything. I but I mean you're you're talking at minimum five figures, pushing sometimes pushing mm-hmm. into a six figure a six-figure total if you're looking at going through the legal process of adopting an egg and then utilizing a surrogate and, you know, then caring for a new baby while you're undergoing cancer treatment. Like that's, to me, that seemed like a no-brainer. I was like, yeah, no, I, I, I mourn, I don't mourn as much the life with a baby as I mourn the life that we lost when I got my diagnosis, that that we had the opportunity to have this. It's what, looking back, would have been a very normal existence rather than this very strange cancer life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I... I want people to to know that if you're going to ask those very personal questions, and I don't necessarily think that that should always be off limits. I mean, certainly to strangers, it's a pretty awkward question. But if, if you're, it should be a question that you're asking and being willing to sit with the answer, not yeah. being, not trying to fix it, not yeah. trying to assume that someone has the financial, economic, uh, psychosocial means to go forward with that. I had a lot of people push back when I said, I'm not preserving my eggs. And they kept saying, why not? Why not? You you really should do that. I kept saying, or you could always adopt. I was like, it's, I don't have the bandwidth to expand my family. I, my focus needs to be on the son that we have, who's incredible and couldn't be a better fit into our family. Our family really feels complete in a lot of ways. I I made my peace with that. And um mm-hmm. but uh yeah. Yeah. That's it's such a loaded question. I, I, I know. Like- <laughs> I know. We could talk about this for hours. I know. Do do you talk to Felix about this? How or how do you think about that? Because you know my our little ones are so close in age. Right. I wonder how does that work? So I I do. I'm very I'm very open with him about what is going on about my cancer and my treatment because I I don't really think that it does much good for him to be 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 shielded from it. This is our new normal. So Every week, I, I I take quite a bit of medication, and my my treatment is actually I'm is not chemotherapy right now. I I take two targeted therapies, but I take a number of pills as part of that therapy. So every week, I refill my pill case, and I he and I sit at the kitchen counter, and I fill my pill case, and he has his own pill case that he fills with goldfish or Cheerios or. Oh, you, you know, whatever little snacky food on hand. And we 
we make it an activity together. We make it, we normalize it. We make it our, our normal. And he sees mommy take her medication every morning because mommy has cancer. I'm, I'm not, I'm going to use that language with him because I, I don't want him to feel like we tried to hide anything from him that, that he should get the respect that he deserves to understand what's going on in his family. And so I I tell him, mommy has a doctor's appointment because mommy has cancer and mommy's going to the doctor because she's, the doctor's taking care of her. And, and he goes, Oh, okay. Okay. Mommy, the doctor's going to help you feel better this month. I said, yes, (laughs) that is the hope. He goes, yes, we hope so. And, and so it's, I like to, I like to think that I'm creating language for him where he doesn't feel like he needs to hide any of this, that, that he can have the language to feel like he has control over parts of the situation in a way that I feel like I have control over the situation. And um, so I, I, I want to keep him aware of what's going on in the, in our family and, help him recognize that this is our family's new normal and this is what's going on in our family. And and this is how he can be a part of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes I just look at our kids and other kids and they know so much. They get so much of what's going on and just including them in it, even if it's really, really hard. It's a parenting. We talked about this parenting. Oh Oh my gosh. And, and, just to 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 jump off of that when they get it it's so incredible and so beautiful the things that they can say and do like it's including them in that part of life is beautiful because they're so loving and empathetic and maybe not understanding all of the nuances of it but if you say mommy's one time i was crying and and he came over and goes, Mama, why are you sad? And I said, I'm sad because Mama's sick and she's very scared. And he ran over to get his little bunny, his little lovey, and he ran over to me and gave me a big hug and dabbed my eyes with his little bunny blanket and gave and sat with me and he goes, I love you, Mommy. It's okay. It's okay to be scared. I'm like, they get it. They they get so much. Like, yeah. Why why would I hide something from him when he has so much power in his little mind and body to to be an incredible little human being? So much so. So much so. So the last thing I want to ask you about, I mean, we could talk for 20 million hours. I know, right? Um, but I want to, what I think is just so especially cool with everything that's happened in your life in the last six months and, and the fact that you're willing to take the time to be on the show is that you took what you, all the skills that you had from your first career and from parenting, and you have created this huge advocacy and awareness program. It's like you've channeled the energy into into something so meaningful. Can you tell us about Beyond the Pink Ribbon and, and what it is and what you do with it? 
Yes, yes. Well, I like to refer to it as my cancer hobby. And Beyond the Pink Ribbon is my my personal blog. It started as a way to give people a place to catch up on what was going on without having to ask me because I was so unavailable to rehash the story over and over again. And I wanted, but I, I wanted to have a record of it. And in some ways I wanted to have a record of it in case I died that I wanted Felix to have a record of what his mom went through and her diagnosis in a way that was it raw and in real time. And so I started blogging my diagnosis and my procedures and my treatment and my fertility struggles. And I try to get something down about once a week to really create this, this narrative of what, as I said, like a snapshot, a series of snapshots in writing of what life looks like with metastatic cancer, because there's such an unnecessary dichotomy between, oh, rah, 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 you have cancer, you're going to fight it and beat it and be a survivor, or it's a death sentence. And I'm not a survivor in kind of that traditional nomenclature, but I'm certainly not on my deathbed. And I need people to recognize that. And I, I don't think that I'm alone in the cancer community with people needing to be recognized as a human, as someone who can cancer needs to live with me rather than me living with cancer. Mm. And um, yes. so, so I started blogging and I realized that this is a really fantastic educational tool. And my, my case management skills and my legal skills and my organizational skills really all dovetailed into creating this, this living document of, you know, how to live life with cancer, how, you know, what is breast cancer? How do you organize yourself? What do these terms mean? And creating a space where people can go to really learn what life with cancer looks like from a lot of different angles. And I always try to write with kind of my legal background. If I'm writing a brief to the court, I need to be able to spell everything out so that anyone reading the document from, you know, such and such uh, cousin overseas to the New York County court judge, everyone is on the same page. And so I always use that skill to create content on my blogs that allows anyone that's reading it to understand exactly what's going on. So I'm, uh, it's been so rewarding to have the opportunity to, and the platform to be able to create this document that people are really responding to. And yeah. as I'm in the process of developing a podcast as an extension of Beyond the Pink Ribbon. And so it'll be the Beyond the Pink Ribbon podcast. And I'm hoping to have it launched in the next month or so. It was originally going to be this month, but then I came down with a cold and I have slowly but surely started learning that I, I, you know, when I need to pump the brakes. (laughs) And so I'm pumping the brakes until I get over my cold and then I'm revving back up to get the podcast underway because I, I want 
conversations like this one to keep happening where people who are living life with this, you know, with these diagnoses that sound so frightening and terrible, but are taking them and becoming entrepreneurs and advocates and educators and developing these incredible systems and networks to take other people that are living with cancer and pull them up and do so much, so much within that community and our community at large, our community of humans. Of humans. You said something so important in one of our earlier notes back and forth. You said life with breast cancer does not always fall into the category of survivor or death sentence. And that's something you're touching on right now about how you're not dead. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, it, and there's this, you know, people can get so morose and so like, oh, we shouldn't talk to so-and-so or they like really, they don't know where to go. You. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, no, I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. But like I spent weeks where I was like, when I first got my, my metastatic diagnosis, I was, I, I would just look in the mirror and go, all right, so am I just going to like wither away and die? Like I had no frame of reference for how, how progression in that disease looks like. And I think people always know someone or a friend of a friend or someone who gets a cancer diagnosis and six weeks later they're dead. And that, that does happen. But for a much larger percentage of people, they get this diagnosis and then they say, okay, well, now I got to find childcare and <laughs> yes, who's going to yes. make dinner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I can go pick up my prescriptions and the, the water bills do. And let me stop <laughs> like, by the pool oh, and go shit. for a swim. Like, yeah, let me go. What do I need to do to take care of myself? Like, yeah. you know, life still happens. And and I got to say that there's if you're willing to accept it, there is a tremendous amount of magic in cancer. And I I don't want to sound so Pollyanna about it, but it's true that getting diagnosed with cancer was the first opportunity since my son was born for me to find a space for myself again, to find out what I needed for self-care and to speak up about my needs and to say, look, my body was falling apart and I knew it and no one took me seriously. And now I am never going to let that happen. I am going to shout from the rooftops, I am my number one priority. Yeah. And I'm going to say, look, this is how I want to live my life from no uncertain terms. And the people that I meet who are just so happy to embrace me and take me under their wing and lift me up and, and give me love and courage and really, you, you can find some of the best of the world the best of humanity comes mm. out and and if you are willing to acknowledge it and it's it's um you know when you think about what happened in you know after September 11th like people came together in ways that the world was falling apart and people came together in ways that was just unfathomable and that, that's kind of how i feel like my life 
transpired, that my life collapsed. And then so many people came out of the woodwork and said, I want to lift you up in this small but meaningful way. And I was able to find my voice as an advocate, find a space to write and to, to utilize all of my skills in a way that allows me to get out of bed in the morning and create a space for my child that makes him a more understanding and empathetic human being. And it's, there's so much magic there if you are willing to let it exist concurrently with, with the sadness and the sorrow and the uncertainty. It's like carrying two shopping bags and you're just walking with them. It's, it's not an adversary. It's just part of your luggage of life. Mm. Emily, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story and your journey in the middle of it. It's really an honor to have you on the show. Oh, it's, it's an honor to be here. I'm, I'm so thankful that you're letting me talk about this and, and I'm, I'm so honored to be here, Sarah. This is really a gift. Thank you. And you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to startuppregnant.com and get on our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs. And I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.